When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Eternals Return of the Same Edition. It's Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. On today's show, The Eternals. It's the latest Marvel movie, so hence we typically would avoid it. But this one's a special juggernaut. It has Chloe Zhao at the helm, but this juggernaut failed to jugger, apparently. Uh, it struggled at the box office for being too, what, arty, inclusive, we will discuss. And then, speaking of juggernauts, it's season three of Succession, one of HBO's better tentpoles since The Sopranos went off the air. It's the story of a Murdoch-like family presiding over a Fox-like empire, and it goes on and on. And finally, Critical race theory is now a relentless object of right-wing demagoguery, culminating in the issue being foremost, shockingly foremost, in the Virginia governor race. We discuss how a somewhat arcane academic subfield got refashioned into a dog whistle by uh, Trump's GOP. Joining me today is Jamel Bowie, of course, the columnist for the New York Times, a man for all seasons. Uh, Jamel, Slate graduate as well. Uh, Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always awesome to have you, and this is this will be really fun, especially when we got a Marvel movie to talk about. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hello, hello. Uh, we ready? We're going to do this? Let us do it. Okay. Well, you have this giant treasury of Marvel IP, and therefore, what, an entire generation, really, of movies, sequels, spinoffs, uh, how to keep profiting from it and monetizing it while also keeping it fresh. Well, the solution at Marvel has been to start marrying the sensibilities of blockbuster filmmaking to the more refined sensibilities of an indie auteur. They hired Chloe Zhao to direct The Eternals, therefore. Um, Zhao is not only indie, she's, in my estimation, a really fine, really humanist and subtle filmmaker. Uh, She did the unjustly neglected, in my opinion, The Rider, which was one of the better movies I think we've discussed in the history of this show. It's just a, a... perfectly realized small uh, film. And then, the, in my estimation, justly recognized Nomadland, which I understand there are intelligent issues to have with that movie. I nonetheless thought it was a masterpiece in its way. Anyway, she has now directed The Eternals, um, and the movie has badly underwhelmed at the box office, as I, as I understand it, compared to other Marvel movies. It's the second lowest gross since they began making them back with uh, Iron Man. And the movie itself has a sort of pale B-team Avengers feel to it. It's not central to the Marvel canon. Uh, Feels a little bit like an afterthought. Anyway, in this one, a team of godlike people, immortal, superly empowered, uh, have woven themselves into human civilization for the past several thousand years, interceding occasionally, but careful not to alter the course of human development. Um, And together they form for one another a kind of surrogate family. It's all kind of uh, familiar. Um, Amidst all the mythic blah blah, though, we have some genuinely novel aspects. There's an openly gay superhero uh, who's in a spousal relationship. There's a deaf superhero. And also the movie features a very diverse cast by the standards of Marvel. It stars Gemma Chan, Kamal Nanjani, Angelina Jolie, and Selma Hayek, among many others. Dana, before we hear the clip, uh, set it up a little. Sure. I believe the scene that we're going to hear involves mainly Kumal Nanjani's character, who is named Kingo, and we'll talk about him more in our conversation. But you're going to hear him at the getting the gang back together moment when Richard Madden's Icarus comes to see if Kingo is available for some superhero duties. He finds his eternal companion in a Bollywood studio where he's in the midst of taping a dance number. So you'll hear the voices of Kumal Nanjani, followed by Richard Madden. Ah! (laughs) My friends from college are here. Oh, boss! Perfect timing! Welcome to the set of Shandar Dastane Icarus. I'm playing you! You like the costume? We need to talk. Tell the director I have some notes for him. We need to talk to you in private. Oh, Karan, he's worked with me for 50 years. I trust him completely. Actually, when we first met, he thought I was a vampire, and he tried to stake me through the heart. 
I have apologized so many times. Not quite enough times. Very close, though. I'll let you know. Oh, I have to get ready for the next scene. Come to my tent. We'll talk there. You can't. You guys are going to love the next scene. I come in on a wire because, you know, I can't fly. Wait, are we getting back together? We need to talk. The deviants are back. We don't know how many there are. You need to come with us. All right. Well, the good news is our producer has always picked a very fun clip from the movie. Uh, it features one of my favorite jokes, Dana, from the movie. They they have to introduce these Eternals in their ordinary existence. When another Eternal shows up at your door, you always introduce them as a friend from college. And um, but it's it's in less happy news. That's not a very representative clip. It's funny. It's peppy. It's you know got a certain infectious you know, joy to it. Not not words that I would use to describe the rest of this movie. What'd you make of it? I will say that I gave this movie a very negative review. I panned it pretty harshly. I don't, in a way, hold it against Chloe Zhao that working within a universe as proscribed as the Marvel directing universe now is, and especially with the burden on her shoulders that she's launching, you know, essentially Avengers-style, launching a whole new cycle of movies, right? I don't envy her her filmmaking task, nor do I sort of feel like I'm that surprised that she was not able to make that indie sensibility that you described work in a in a Marvel format. But I thought this movie was just dead in the water. Like, I, it really made me feel like I never wanted to have to write about one of these movies again, because I truly am out of things to say. Even when you do sick the latest hot indie director on the Marvel Universe, I still don't think you can come up with anything that novel or interesting. And yet, I guess, and Jamel will probably speak to this because I think he liked it more, this movie is novel in terms of the um, the chunk of mythology that it bites off and the somewhat abstract nature of its themes and questions. And I'll leave it there and just and just go to Jamel and, and let him talk a little more about who the Eternals are. For one thing, in the comic book universe, I'd love to hear a bit about that and also just what you thought of the movie. Okay, I'll, I'll start with the, a little bit about the Eternals and then I'll go to the movie. Um, so more or less, Jack Kirby, who is sort of the... The, the father of much of what we know as the Marvel Universe, beginning with Captain America in the 1940s and continuing up into the 70s. The Eternals were Jack Kirby's last creation for Marvel, which he done after a stint at DC, where he created actually a similar set of sort of godlike characters who have their own affairs. Um, the original comic is fine. It's not particularly good. It's not bad. The art is incredible, as is Jack Kirby's one, um, that's his whole thing. His, his art is sort of what's distinctive about him. Um, and for the movie, they more or less drew quite a bit from Kirby's original run from the 70s and then also quite a bit from Neil Gaiman's relaunch of the, the property in the 2000s. I think the things that make The Eternals weak as a comic book series very much show up in this movie, which is that it's just hard to make anything compelling about eternal beings who have no real problems or conflicts. And to the extent that any characters did, those are the ones who I thought in the film were um, most compelling. So the character Sprite, who was created as like a an adolescent is permanently an adolescent and that provides you know some pathos for the character and some conflict for the film um but the the both kirby's original series and neil gaiman's relaunch have this basic problem of the characters just not being terribly compelling and that what is compelling about the property are the visuals, are this idea of the celestials, of these grand cosmic beings. That stuff is compelling, but as far as storytelling goes, there's not really a ton there. And I think that that to me, that, that to me is the movie. Um, I've been told, you know, I was talking about this on Twitter, and I've been told that Chloe Zhao, this is the movie Chloe Zhao wanted to make, that there were no real conflicts with the Marvel, you know, studio system. Um, that the, that the, the suits sort of stayed out of her way while, while she was making this. And, you know, people can say that or whatever, but when I watch the film, what I perceive myself is just like thematic conflict between whatever Zhao is trying to do, which to me is kind of the, you know, the movie she's trying to do is a, a ponderous, you know, very interior kind of like meditation on faith and belief um, kind of what happens if God is real, he created you, but it turns out he's like a huge jerk and a monstrous liar. <laughs> that that to me is sort of like the animating theme of the movie. And then there's all the Marvel stuff. So the clip we listened to is sort of like a very jokey, quippy Marvel 
dialogue, which feels jarringly out of place with, you know, with these um, uh, slow moving and, you know, sometimes quite reverent uh, uh, imagery and kind of like long pauses and, and quiet and interiority. The same goes for the action scenes, which are sort of, they have to be there, but just don't really feel like a part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's the problem Marvel's had for a while now, which is how do you get a humanist director to go with, by their nature, inhuman heroes and produce something that coheres? And I think what Zhao might have been trying to do here is make a vampire movie to get at the central pathos of every few years literally just having to disappear from your quote-unquote ordinary life because you're not aging. And the people around you find that inexplicable and creepy and um you know it, it sort of getting at that vampire movie paradox which is that eternal life isn't life right it's not just life going on forever it's not life going on forever in some way and i thought that there was a moral intelligence behind trying to inject that into a marvel film it doesn't succeed in my estimation as a movie that said, it has this admirably diverse cast. It's really, I, if I had to identify the central protagonist as a character played by Gemma Chan, uh, there are good performances. It's it's an amazing cast. Dana, talk a little bit about that, maybe. I mean, I don't know if I would say there are good performances exactly, because again, <laughs> it's all taking place in such an yeah. artificial sealed universe that yeah. I, nothing resonated emotionally Fair. with me at all. I mean, I think what... Maybe the oddest thing about the cast in this movie is that there are so many movie stars who you would think would be sort of exciting to see in this format by their very nature, Angelina Jolie being premier among them. And, you know, she gets to do action sequences and, I mean, all kinds of things that usually you kind of can't miss with, right? Like put Angelina Jolie in a certain kind of, um, you know, fighter movie and you have some kind of electricity. This movie never finds that with her character or any other. It does get some laughs from the Kumail Nanjiani character, but that, as you said, Steve, is so atypical of the tone of the movie. Mm -hmm. So I could say, for example, that Gemma Chan and that character, Cersei, the main character that you mentioned, who is this, you know, sort of uh, an immortal who's struggling with her desire to live like a mortal, right? She has a mortal boyfriend, although we get a sense in the teaser at the end, he's going to turn out to be something super as well, because nobody can just be normal in these movies. I, I thought Gemma Chan's performance was really stiff and lifeless and expressionless. But again, it could be, you know, just the the sort of green screen deadening situation that's that's surrounding all of the actors. This movie, in a way, almost foregrounded what it must be like to make a Marvel movie for an actor to me, because I was never able to suspend my disbelief long enough to get into this universe. I just pictured everyone all the time wearing, you know, motion capture stickers and talking to a green tennis ball. <laughs> you could really feel that artificiality and studio made quality, even though this for Marvel movie has an unusual number of, you know, outdoor scenes and golden light and these sort of Terrence Malick uh, scenic effects that, that Chloe Zhao likes to put into her movies here. It just, it felt really artificial and off. So yeah, I don't, I, I have practically nothing good to say about anyone in this movie even though I'm excited by many of these actors in other situations Can I, just a comment on on the performances real quick I thought what was frustrating about the movie is that you see you do see flashes of chemistry between some of the actors yes, so Lauren Ridloff as Macari and Barry Cogan as Druig in particular I think had real chemistry and whenever they were on screen together and interacting together I kind of thought I want more of those two. But the movie is focused on Gemma Chan, who who who, has, who does give this um, uh, kind of stiff performance. Then Richard Madden, who is just a complete piece of cardboard um, mm. uh, for the entire film, and uh, I don't know, just just I, I I kind of think that there is there is a version of this movie in here somewhere that is probably a bit better and a bit more compelling and a bit stranger. And I think what 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 really hurts this, and I think this to me is sort of like the the conflict I perceived in the film, is I think there is a desire to be a little more strange with this whole this whole concept um, that runs straight into the fact that this has to be um, this has to pander to the whole world. I wonder, Jamel, whether we can pull out the camera and make any uh, abstract statements about the future of Marvel from this movie. It seems maybe like not because it is it is an unusual venture to have given it to this rising indie director. And it's a very weird idiosyncratic movie that doesn't necessarily set the the 
template for how Marvel will be going forward. But it does seem like the company is at this moment of having to figure out how it's going to reinvent itself post Avengers. <laughs> like, you know, we're rising from the, the Thanos ash. And I wonder what you see as the future of this, you know, monster entertainment corporation. So when I, I saw this on Saturday night uh, at a mostly empty showing, and the only other people in the theater were four people at the bottom. Um, and after the movie, you know, during the credits, they were talking, and they all uniformly hated it. Um, but they didn't hate it because of anything about the about, because of the performances or the plot or the story or whatever. They hated the movie because it did not do enough to connect to other movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They were complaining that they didn't see Spider-Man or Doctor Strange or anyone, any other, any other of the characters from the rest of the franchise. And that, that to me, get which first of all, that complaint made me like the movie a little more, I think. Um, uh, but that, to me, gets to what I think Marvel's challenge is, which is that for these things to be fresh, for these things to be interesting, for this franchise to, I think, continue you know, successfully for another decade, they, the, the Marvel Studios needs to pull back on its control. I think it needs to pull back on this desire to integrate everything into a single unified universe. And I think that when Eternals works, it is doing those sorts of things. When it doesn't work, it's sort of Marvel, it's the movie falling back into old habits. But the problem for Marvel as a studio and as a company is that that would, I think, enrage their fan base, who who has been trained not to evaluate these films on the basis of whether they work as stories, but has been trained to evaluate them on the basis of what they connect to. You know, if a movie, mm-hmm. if a movie has all their friends, all their favorite characters, and it's good. And if it doesn't, then it's not. Um, and so how how Marvel Studios uh, uh, trains its audience to accept um, a little less connectivity and a little more actual stylistic um, uh, you know, individuality from each film will be interesting to see if they even attempt it. Mm. All right. Well, hardly a round table of thumbs up here but an interesting movie to think about if you know some of our listeners have seen it and have um, have other opinions we'd love to hear them all right moving on apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, well, uh, now is the moment in the podcast we typically talk business. Dana, what do we have? Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to be talking to Jamel, since we are lucky to have Jamel Bowie on the show, about his new podcast, which is called Unclear and Present Danger. There are two episodes so far, and the show is about political thrillers of the 1990s. So movies like The Hunt for Red October, which was the first movie they discussed, and Patriot Games, which was the second. On this podcast, Jamel and his co-host John Gans look back at those movies to figure out what they say about that particular time in post-Cold War America. It's a great idea for a podcast. It's really good so far. So Slate Plus members will be lucky enough to hear Jamel talk about that with us at the end of the show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. It only costs $1 for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts and a lot of bonus content like the above described segment. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And best of all, members will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. So please, if you want to support us and our work and that of our brilliant colleagues, go to slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus to sign up for a membership. Okay, Steve, what's next? 
All right. Well, Succession is now in its third season on HBO. It's the most, I would say, a water coolie show they've had since Game of Thrones, maybe even The Sopranos. Uh, who knows? Open to debate. Uh, once again, though, we have a troubled patriarch in search of his lost oats. He's fending off his rivals, and he's unsure whether to cultivate his own children as successors or throttle their ambitions in the proverbial crib. As you probably know, the show is kind of a juiced-up Romana Clay about uh, Rupert Murdoch. Logan Roy is the founder and CEO of a media empire. He still has his tyrannical vim and cunning mostly intact, but with a touch of leer out on the heath. So his children are eyeing him quite carefully. They're unsure whether to prop him up and be content with their uber-rich lifestyles or to commit a timely parasite and take over the company and become masters of the universe themselves. Just as The Sopranos took as its creative impetus Tony's hatred of his own humanity, which gave him dizzy spells and sent him to the therapist, so too Succession is about a family caught in the bind we all face under hypercapitalism, arguably, whether to be a completely cold-blooded, self-interested, transactional killer, or to be a fill-in-the-blank, a friend, a husband, a wife, father, child, an in-law, whatever. Season three opens with Kendall, maybe the most promising of the children, the exception possibly of Shiv, but also an addict and therefore the least predictable going for it and going in for the big and perhaps final kill. Okay, the following is a key scene in which Kendall, who's uh, now publicly out to depose his father, turns to his siblings to see whether they will be allies or enemies in this fight. Okay, here's how I see this. Dad is complicated. But he did or let bad stuff happen. Yeah, and now it's a part of us and our sickness. And we have to take responsibility because we knew. And this is our chance to pay our dues and wash our hands for absolution. Uh, okay. Well, I didn't know. Sure, whatever, but yeah, you did. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. Did you, Rome? No, I didn't. No, no. No? No. The fucking pipeline of sad dancers who got used and abused and promised some Hollywood bullshit? We fucking knew. Right. No, I, I mean, I kind of knew, you know, that there was... But I didn't know to the fucking... I did. I really did not. Oh, come on. We knew. Jamel, I mean, if any show is defined by attraction repulsion, I mean, both its own content is about attraction and repulsion to money and power... But the show itself, in its kind of writing and presentation, I think almost demands on the part of even its fans a degree of of fascinated repulsion, in addition to just, you know, attraction to, the, I guess, the lifestyle or whatever. I mean, I all of which is to say, where where in this do you fall? Are you a fan of the show? Are you, uh, what's your, um, what's your level of attraction or repulsion to the Roy family? You know, I watch this show because my wife is a, is a big fan, but I myself, I have to say, don't get it. <laughs> this is, I I think it's a show that really, uh, uh, you know, I run up against my limits of understanding here because, and this is mainly because it's so tonally strange to me. It is both, it has the presentation of a serious drama, right? It has sort of the cringe comedy of a. Of a, of a British sitcom, except that cringe comedy is presented in the same tone as a serious drama. Then it also has many elements of farce. And so when I watch it, I'm never quite sure how I'm supposed to be receiving what's going on on screen. And, you know, there obviously is no one really to root for in any of this. I don't need anyone to root for, but I... I you know, in the, in, the, in the clip we listened to, Kendall is presented as someone who might be on the right side of things. Um, the closest thing the audience might have to, some, to something like a, a good guy, but he, he very much isn't. But the show, I don't know, the show seems to me to really relish in sort of the ambiguity of over what exactly its tone is and what exactly it's trying to do. Um, and I, I, I myself uh, find that intolerable. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it also it Dana it has a quirk that I can't adjust to no matter how I try which is following the original British the office right the original Ricky Gervais show um there's there's occasionally a documentary film style without ever suggesting that there's a documentarian filming it 
sort of the jerk of the verite jerk of the camera, the sudden close up of like the documentarian who knows to zoom in because this is the key money moment uh, in the drama that they're that they're the real life drama that they're um, capturing. Uh, that that strikes me. I, I, it's a small thing, I guess, but it strikes me as of a piece with what Jamel is identifying, which is an incredible amount of swagger and yet maybe an odd um, failure of imagination or something. I'm glad you mentioned the swerving camera because it's something that really strikes you when you watch a few episodes of this in a row. My feeling toward this show is so complicated. I feel like with this show, for me, a little bit goes a very long way, but I want. But when I'm experiencing that little bit, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I I feel so many moments of repulsion. That's the right word for it, Steve. In this in this show, part of it because of the closeness of the universe, right? The mm-hmm. fact that it's about this family that is like the Murdochs or like the Trumps in many ways, um, but yet the movie never travels outside their bubble, right? Like there literally aren't characters on the show who aren't incredibly wealthy, right? So it's all about the palace intrigue within this particular company and the other companies that are trying to take it over and all these international sharks and whatever, like masters of finance. Um, But especially, I I believe, in this third season, we're going to start to see them move toward having more political influence, the Roy family. And it starts to feel more and more queasy that we're only caring about the palace intrigue. And part of that whole closed universe feeling that you're, you're talking about, Steve, comes in the camera work, as you're saying, those ticks of the camera having to do that that shaky zoom as if it's a documentary film for no reason that I can see. And I mean, lots and lots of filmmaking ticks. Like this move, this show always feels very padded to me. There has to be some long scene of a, you know, a cavalcade of black SUVs going to some new yeah. exotic location. Yeah. It just, it always follows this very set sort of series of, of formal rules. And all of this seems like it would make you feel trapped in the show and just want to claw your way out of it. Yet, it is strangely drug-like, too, and I think a big part of that is because it's really well-written and it's really well-acted, right? I mean, thematically, I could make all kinds of objections to this show. I also think it has all the tonal problems that Jamel is talking about. It's sort of like, is it a soap opera, right? Like Sometimes Jeremy Strong's Kendall, who, I mean, I think he's an incredible performer and it's a great character, but he seems to be sometimes in a different sort of tragic world than his more comic siblings, and it doesn't all balance very well. And yet, there is something, I think what it comes down to in a way is that Nick Patel song in the credit sequence. It's one of the greatest credit credit sequences I can think of in recent TV history, and every single time, it traps me back in to that world. As you were saying, Steve, the kind of cushiony luxury, but it's also kind of sickening and overwhelming. There aren't many shows you can binge and you want to watch the theme and the full introduction, which is a pretty long intro on this show every time, but yeah. I never never want to miss it. You know, Dana, one thing you said surprised me. You said that it was very well written. I would say it's most definitely not underwritten, but it features lines like, I'm in a knife fight and I'm holding a dildo made of American cheese, which just strikes me as there's so much of that over the top. I mean, the, the creator was the creator of Thick of It and that was what that show was known for. Just incredibly... You know, ribaldry, you know, just every line overloaded with blue talk and, um, you know, funny, smutty insults. And and it's it's a tick and kind of every character does it, you know, which is sort of how bad writing disguises itself as good writing. Um, And but that said, there are also moments of extraordinary writing and and filmmaking. I mean, but. Can I specify my good writing? <laughs> I think that was a little bit too broad, and I felt it even when I said it. It's more that this show is internally consistent in its tone. It, I think to a fault at times, as you say, Very. like all the characters sort of speak in the same way. But that goes back to the idea that we we never leave this bubble of this world where this particular well, dysfunctional family has invented yes. this particular form of, you know, sort of foul-mouthed right. you know, love language. Right. Um, and so 
the show really delivers in terms of this particular lingo that it's invented for itself, but that doesn't mean that it's great writing in the sense of reaching for larger no, themes no, no. and, you know, right, being right. some Shakespearean world but that I'm, unfolds different kinds of human yes. experience. No, 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 of course. And I think the claustrophobia and the quality of the writing are bound up in one another in a positive way, which is that you are meant to be drawn into this hermetic world and it's airless and self-referential deeply incestuous, self-involved, narcissist. I mean, you know, it's meant to be, it's huge. Its canvas is absolutely huge, but it plays out on in t- in tiny chambers of power where, where power is not shared. It's hoarded so tightly that the world can seem as though it's occupied by only six or eight people um, at any given time. And I think that that, that works in some level. What, as someone who kind of came of age in the 70s and 80s, this sh- show like this is resonant in ways that are quite sad because I remember the sort of first of its type was 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 uh, Gordon Gecko in, in Wall Street. It was, it was I understand that it's a genre that goes all the way back, but the kind of gangster, the return of the gangster capitalist in the 80s, the sort of unapologetic, I will justify all of my actions with shallow reference to Adam Smith. My self-interest will eventually inure to the public interest of all. In the meantime, I get to get away with bloody fucking murder. And that became, the per- per- perverse thing about Gecko is, as, as, you know, as has been reiterated over and over since, is that, you know, it was supposed to be like Oliver Stone's morality tale about, you know, a finan- heavily financialized capitalism became, in fact, a role model for generations of people still who go to Wall Street wanting to be like Gecko, and 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 so there's there's a sadness at this never kind of going away that the that the idea that we would finally grow up and move beyond the attraction repulsions of utter selfishness has just been falsified decade after decade for those of us who were sort of dismayed attracted but more deeply dismayed the first time around to have it have it never really mitigate there was one thing though Jamel I think the show gets really really right though and that is a modification on that paradigm which is how it is the case that in the second generation what is toxic about the founder has to intensify it has to get worse it doesn't actually mitigate there there has to be less grace on the part of the children because they're in an impossible bind, which is they can't ultimately repeat the story that allowed the founder his vanity, which is a myth of self-making. It's untrue in the initial instance, but it's true enough, and it's easily falsified in the second generation. And I think that this show gets at the bind that they're in, which is you know, should I be just a doofus with a ranch in Colorado wasting his money on stupid causes and Broadway flops and just accept that that's, I live the life of the wastrel rich, you know, and be somewhat graceful about it, which, you know, Connor's kind of all of the downsides of that, none of the grace, or should I try to be a stone cold killer? In which case you have to prove how ruthless you are in symbolic ways all the time, because at some level you are just a pampered rich kid. I think that that's where my interest in the show comes from. No, I, I think that's a really astute point. And I think Succession does capture that dynamic extremely well, that it takes real work uh, for the second generation, right, of, of a dynasty of any kind to be as successful or as shrewd um, or as, you know, aware of themselves in the world as the founder was. And if you, you know, Logan Roy very clearly is a very self-involved man um, who it's you know, suggested did not pay very much attention to his children. And so to the extent that he is in a crisis of who to pass things on to, it's a crisis of his making. He did not take the time or expend the effort to actually groom someone who could take over to 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 actually raise children in the way that would give them some resilience and some um, some of the qualities, some of the better qualities that he may have had. Um, it is, you know, it, anyone who reads any medieval history will see very many examples of this, right? Of sort of, um, uh, of, of dynasties, of kingdoms, uh, you know, falling to their knees because the, the next generation just isn't equipped to, um, to, to deal with the challenges. And, and more importantly, there's an unwillingness to look outside of the family for talent and drive. Well, Dana, a show that ne- that neither jumps the shark sufficiently that you could dump it, but never maybe achieves the transcendent, you know, crescendo of truly great TV. Is that sort of where we're 
I don't want to speak for you. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. And yet at the same time, it's not the middle of the road blahness that that would imply True. where it's sort of like yes. neither into the spectrum, right? It isn't a sort of an intense feeling show. And this something that was occurring to me as we were talking about it is that there really is a kind of the drug metaphor really holds up, right? Even down to the, the repetitious cycle the show seems to be trapped in where it just rehearses the same kind of changeless, um, you know, intrigue again and again. That's that's kind of part of addiction, too, is the repetition of addiction. And something that was occurring to me is that the last time I had binged a bunch of this show prior to prepping for this segment, and I'm not quite caught up, but I'm two episodes from the end now. The last time I had binged it was right after I got my second COVID shot. So, you know, back um, in the in the spring. And it sort of went with that feeling. There's something about this show because it already makes you feel yucky that you might as well watch it, you know, lying on the couch with a fever. And then after that, I felt sort of fed up with it and didn't want to watch it for months and months. So, yeah, a- ambivalent. Weird yet seductive and drug-like. That's my final few words. On <laughs> that's succession. your final offer. Yeah, I, and I accept that offer. Yeah, that's where I come out to. Anyway, all right. It's Succession. It's on HBO. Uh, you're probably watching it. You probably disagree with us. Email us. We we we'd love to hear that. All right. Moving on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, I hope without oversimplifying it too much, uh, Critical race theory emerged from an archetypal experience that an early wave of black scholars were having, most notably Derek Bell, the Harvard law professor, who uh, he was hired, he was granted tenure, but he encountered a new kind of racism, a well-meaning and liberal one. Um, And the idea there is that, you know, we, this great liberal institution, Harvard, will make a black appointment here or there, and then we can all move on. Um, This led to Bell and others commanding insight that well-meaning liberalism of this kind might make the token higher while leaving the basic relationships of domination and subordination on a racialized basis fully intact. Drawing on a long history of European social criticism, notably the Frankfurt School, some deconstruction, some post-structuralism as well, um, critical race theory went about trying to show how law is an instrument of power in ways that cannot be accounted for without a comprehensive appreciation of racial hierarchy. let me now set this against another history, which is that of the racist dog whistle as used by the Republican Party to drive white voters to the polls. Um, it, expanding upon a history of blatant racism of the Jim Crow South, uh, the Republican Party, especially starting in the 60s and 70s in the Nixon era, began hiding racial appeals behind supposedly subtler cues, hence the dog whistle. So welfare, queen, busing, law and order, and of course in the late 80s, Willie Horton well, the very, in some ways, newfangled critical race theory has now been brought together with the very old-fangled and repulsive uh, racial dog whistling, especially in Virginia. Jamel, let me pivot to you. This is a history lesson you don't you know, need to hear from me, but George W.H. Bush was facing a huge deficit to Dukakis uh, over the summer of 1988. And then he started talking about Willie Horton. And it, the it, remarkable thing is how directly, causally, Bush turned around his prospects uh, for election in 88, eventually defeating Dukakis quite handily. Here we are, however many years later, three, four decades later, and you have the Democrat Terry McAuliffe running for governor in in Virginia and uh, beating his Republican opponent in the polls until his Republican opponent starts talking about critical race theory. I have to admit, I 
just did not see this one coming as someone who went to college in the 1980s was familiar with critical race theory and its origins and in critical legal studies and also very familiar with this other wretched history of right-wing racial dog whistling that the two have come together to me is astonishing what what do you make of it no, I think the use of critical race theory as a dog whistle is in some ways kind of brilliant because it does it does a couple of things at once. First of all, just the the phrase critical race theory sounds vaguely conspiratorial if you've never encountered it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it kind of primes the mind for a certain a certain way of thinking. Uh, it's you know it's it's targeted not at the actual discipline, the, the dog whistle or whatever, but at sort of changes, real changes that have happened in schools around, you know, discussion of race, this uh, history of racism, history of American, teaching of American history that do make quite a few white parents uh, uncomfortable. Some of this stuff I think is very defensible, especially when it comes to history instruction. Some of it when it comes to you know, diversity and equity initiatives, maybe less so, but it, it it is speaking to a real phenomena. And then also it is speaking directly to people who are just sort of outright reactionaries who are, you know, mad about their kids having to learn about showing empathy to black people. So it, 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 it under the single umbrella term, you have a bunch of different kinds of anxieties and different kinds of, of fears and discomforts. And when you when someone like Glenn Youngkin right says we're going to get CRT out of schools, they're speaking to kind of all of those things at once. And then when Democrats respond quite naturally, well, no one's teaching uh, a obscure legal theory in your child's you know second grade class. That just doesn't respond well to the people who 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 hear in the term something one of their anxieties or fears or whatnot being reflected back at them. So it's sort of it's it's. It's a sort of, in terms of political language, sort of neat hat trick of both evoking a whole suite of white anxieties, but also offering plausible deniability around evoking those white anxieties, um, and 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 sort of using that to, if not win over converts, and certainly generate enthusiasm among one's own supporters. Mm. Dana, maybe. Shame on me for being surprised by this at all. Um, you know, one strand of this, I mean, both strands of it are well established, right? I mean, the right going back to at least George Wallace up through Reagan's running for governor in the 1960s in California, virtually running against uh, Berkeley, you know, uh, and the protests at Berkeley, but also the pointy headed intellectuals. Um, you know, uh, 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 George H.W. Bush demagoguing political correctness. Um, you know, theory has been a kind of funny bugaboo of the intellectual right. They love, long after people will forget the names of Derrida and Foucault, there'll be some dimwad over at the New Criterion writing long essays about how that began the terminal phase of Western civilization. Why, why should I have been surprised, right? The right suddenly had both, right? It had both this anti-intellectual uh, a brick bat and the dog whistle in one. Yeah, that's a very good question. Was it a surprise or not? For example, mm. this is just one part of what we're talking about, but that the Virginia election was in some ways swung by this crazy wedge issue, you know, invented problem of critical race theory being taught in schools. Why did that suddenly pick up this momentum, you know, decades after, as you say, this term sort of first came into being in academia? Why did it suddenly spring up at this moment? I think I could say that I'm surprised at the degree to which it was able to swing an election after having just, you know, as somebody wrote about this, it's the new caravan, right? It just popped mm, up as this yeah, kind of yeah. Fox manufactured um, and social media fanned issue in the last couple of years. And there, there was something that I wanted to ask Jamel, because it seems like in, in when you try to figure that out, you try to figure out the kind of genealogy of how this suddenly became this feverishly important, you know, Fox talking point in 2020 and 2021, it seems to me like the 1619 Project always comes up, right? The big package that was run in the New York Times Magazine. I think that was the summer of 2019. Is that right, Jamel? That's right. I, I, you know, I, I think you're right to bring up the 1619 Project and specifically its reach and how you know popular it, it initially was with a wide number of audiences. My, for my part, you know, I think you can link that to the George Floyd protests, right? And and 
you know, in the big cities, of course, you had these like large multiracial crowds of protesters. And nationally, I think about 15 million people ended up protesting, which would make it the single largest protest you know, event in American history. Um, but you, you know, in Virginia, you know, you go out, you if you went out to you know places in the, in the rural parts of the state, you know, lily white places of the state, you had marches and protests, you know, across the country. Uh, in places where there aren't very many black people or brown people or whomever, you still had um, uh, people protesting, often led and organized by teenagers, by white teenagers. And I think that that is sort of the the underlying, the thing underlying all of this, the reason why this could suddenly become so salient for a group of people is they are, it's the, the age-old fear of their children betraying them, mm. right? Their children betraying um uh the 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 picture of the world that they thought um they had instilled in their children and they're looking for something to blame for this and so it becomes well how we're teaching history in schools and how you know you know diversity and equity initiatives or whatnot when the reality is that like the, you know the the thing they should blame is sort of like peer groups wider american culture you know all these sorts of other things that that schools have not that much influence over. Um, but to me, this is, I mean, this, that the critical race theory panic is a, a, a panic about kind of the allegiance of the children to, you know, a vision of, um, of, you know, of uh, white dominance is too strong, but sort of kind of like, you know, white preeminence in society, the, 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 the uh, centering of um, a certain kind of American and a certain vision of America. And a lot of these kids are rejecting it. And that is causing, I think, something of an existential panic amongst their parents. Yes. And also, I mean, how dangerous to the premises of the Republican Party in in the aftermath of Floyd to have wide cross-sections of white America suddenly thinking about race in a new way. And if you assign only cynicism to the right, and no sincerity of beliefs whatsoever, just as a hypothetical, let's say they're not even especially racist. They are just purely self-interested cynics. For them, race has always been, on this theory, a way of introducing a level of social democracy to America that the right is completely and firmly uh, devoted to never having have happened. So the traditional move is to reintroduce reintroduce race as a dog whistle in order to prevent anything anything like a cross-racial uh, uh, alliance between whites and blacks acting in their own economic self-interest. Well, ironically, in the aftermath of Floyd, you have huge, huge majorities, as I understand it, of white, white Americans understanding what they've seen, seeing the ocular proof of it, a broad daylight lynching on an American street, and really serious, I think some seriously agonizing soul searching about what that might mean. And here the right did something incredibly, incredibly cynical and cunning, is they actually in some ways using CRT shifted the analysis back to class away from race. Because the among the first things that hits me when I hear critical race theory is I think of a professor, right? All of a sudden, it's kind of about an intellectual telling you how you actually think and feel as opposed to a video showing you what America's still made of. And that was when my heart really sank, because that is a turf that they're so comfortable fighting on. You know, Reagan made a very similar move. It was law and order. The Berkeley protesters handed him a huge gift, which is that law and order could now go from being a clear racial euphemism to covering those white, spoiled college kids on Sproul Hall. Um, I, Jamel... We're a culture podcast, and we're talking about an ostensibly political subject. I do think it's a culture topic, though, um, in the sense that theory has something important and concrete to teach us, not trivial and trivial and overly abstract or pointy-headed at all, which is, you know, it's, it's an attempt to understand how power, power relations actually function outside the traditional formal categories of analysis because power isn't confined that's the essential insight as i understand it it's not confined to these received categories of political analysis like the state the vote uh the franchise law or maybe even justice on a liberal paradigm it, i think you've written beautifully about this and even today i notice you have a column relatedly about a why structural analysis has an important 
maybe even non-negotiable role to play in the cause of racial justice. Right. The the a, a, what a structural analysis gets at is the basic reality that once you observe the 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 reproduction of certain um, inequalities in the society, you kind of really only have two ways to go. You can either blame the people themselves, say, well, these people must be inferior or deficient or pathological in some way that is either obvious or that we still have to investigate, or you start looking for what is similar about their circumstances, what is similar about circumstances through time, what dynamics are producing these outcomes. And I think that the latter path takes you very quickly to kind of trying to understand something about the structure of the society in which you live and the, and the relationships, um, you know, relationships in terms of of, uh, of, of capital and of um, uh, you know productive forces that you know produce certain kinds. Of outcomes and and you know reinscribe certain kinds of ideas and ideologies and you know from the perspective of of someone who is conservative and I'm someone who takes sort of conservative objections very I think people are generally pretty sincere about what they believe hmm. um, from the from the perspective of a conservative right that that way of thinking does in fact begin to it, it threatens explicitly received hierarchies received ideas uh, ways ways of ways of being ways of doing. Um, that require pushback. And to me, the, the CRT panic is just an, an, another species of that. I mean, it's not for nothing, right? That although the respectable version of this usually involves a pivot to, you know, embracing the negatives of our history and sort of it's kind of a a, um, a, a post-racial liberal liberalism um, in some ways. If you if you read Glenn Youngkin's speeches, he always made that pivot, which I think explains some of why he could convert um, you know, suburban voters. Um, but if you go beyond that into the fever swamps, the, the CRT panic very quickly just becomes like opposition to racial egalitarianism in general. Mm. Um, and that, I think, tells you something about sort of what what all of this is emanating from, not just, you know, whatever, you know, good faith concern there might be over certain kinds of teaching materials, but also a real fear that what we've witnessed over the last couple of years is something of a, of an undermining of, of, of certain hierarchies and certain ways of thinking and perceiving the world. T- to bring this to culture a little bit, an analogy I'll make is not to something political necessarily, but to the big panic around gangster rap in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not old enough to have directly experienced it, but I've certainly watched my fair share of, you know, VH1 documentaries about it. And, you know, when the the advent of gangster rap and its popularity among white suburban kids like was fuel for a, an outright moral panic about what the music is doing to our precious white children. And I <laughs> I see some of that in this. Um some of some of the fear of um what happens if our kids really begin to empathize with um with black people broadly understood. Yeah, Jamel, I feel that too. There's a real sense of repetition and recycling. That seems to be the theme of our show this week is like things that are stuck in cycles, whether it's Marvel or Succession or this conversation, which I feel like is just a different social media amplified repetition of a lot of conversations that were happening in the early 90s about race and education, right? And what was called political correctness at the time that's now devolved (laughs) rhetorically into this horrible concept of wokeness that means literally nothing, right? It's just something that you apply in giant broad brushstrokes to any sort of um, discourse about race that feels unfamiliar. Um, But those battles over rap is, is a part of it too. And also just the word Ebonics pops to mind when you're talking about all of that, which was, you know, this sort of another um, boogeyman invented by the right in order to scare people about their children's education. All right. Well, this is one of those, one, this is one of those topics of conversation that sadly is never going to go away and we'll revisit as we go, but we'd love uh, listener mail on this. All right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? This week, I'm going to endorse something that's really small, but that I'm hoping to explore further and find the entire thing. It's a little two-minute clip of Michael Sheen, the great Welsh-born actor, performing a Welsh poet, Dylan Thomas's poem, Under Milkwood. Steve, has this come across your desk? I ask you because I know that you're a, a poetry guy. No, 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 no. You know who Michael Sheen is, of course. You can picture yeah. 
Yeah. So he, right, he's, he doesn't usually get to use his Welsh accent. You think of him as an English actor in general, in the, at least in the parts that make it over here to, to this side of the pond. But he is, in fact, Welsh and has that incredible Welsh voice, maybe the most beautiful of all Commonwealth accents. I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a dicey thing to say when you've got, you know, the Irish and the Scottish and so many great voices out there. But just to hear a Welshman read a Welsh poet's verse is just extraordinary. So this two-minute clip from the poem is something that went viral on Twitter a couple weeks ago and that I've shown to a bunch of people, including my daughter who's studying acting, and everybody's been blown away by watching him just, you know, have this this memorized poem that he's delivering on a stage. I'm not sure what the context is. It seems to be the National Theater of Britain that has um, that has put this on its YouTube site, but I'm going to explore further when I can. Maybe just as a sample right now, we can listen to a little clip of Michael Sheen performing under Milkwood. Okay, to begin at the beginning. It is spring! Moonless night in the small town. Starless and ooh, Bible black. The cobble streets, silent. And the hunched quarters and rabbits wood limping, invisible, down to the slow black, slow black, crow black, fishing boat bobbing sea. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Jamil, what do you have? I recently picked up a Criterion edition of Norman Jewison's film Moonstruck, uh, and we, my wife and I watched it uh, last week, and I was just totally delighted by it. I had not seen it in years, and it is a wonderful little film with an incredible performance uh, by Cher, um, a, a kind of star-making performance by Nick Cage, very young um, and hunky Nick Cage. And uh, it's just a delight of a movie. Uh, the moon driving Italians mad. It's, um, it's fun. <laughs> I love that. Jamel, I think that's on the order of when John Swansburg came on our show and endorsed Cheers. <laughs> like It's something that everyone already knows and loves, but it's great to be reminded to watch it again. And even though I feel like Moonstruck is sort of you know, permanently memorized and engraved in my brain somewhere, I probably haven't watched it in 15 years. So that's a good reminder that you, know, you can go back and revisit it, and it's still great. I have never seen Moonstruck. <gasps> Steve! So- Jamel. All right, maybe we do it as a as a comfort movie sometime, as a special episode on a slow news week. Will Will Jamel come back and do a a, a one off segment on the comforts of Moonstruck? Of course. Yeah, that that'd be really fun. Uh, all right, so for my endorsement, this is a sort of slightly odd thing to do. I'm not that odd. I'm endorsing essentially a book review of a book that the review both summarized beautifully and completely enticed me to buy. I haven't read it yet, but the idea behind the book is so wonderful, and it's a very well done review. So first, the review is in the um, uh, Prospect Magazine by Peter Salmon, like the fish. And it's a review of um, a book called The Women Are Up to Something, How Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch Revolutionized Ethics. And as the review says quite beautifully, essentially you had this movement in uh, English philosophy, especially, but I guess Anglo-American philosophy in general, to describe the universe as value-free and therefore that any discussion of, of human values is itself inherently subjective, will descend into bickering or pure emotion. And A.J. Ayer being probably the most prominent English philosopher pioneering that idea. And then in the next generation, slightly behind him were Gilbert Ryle, uh, who had a quite radically behavioristic theory of mind and on and on. Well, there were these other philosophers who happened to be women who, uh, uh, dissented from this brilliantly. Um, and I, I know a little bit about each of them, maybe something more about Murdoch, because she was so temperamentally a novelist as well. I mean, more famous for being a novelist. So I, I was able to get at her philosophy via that. But now someone has made the coherent argument um, using biography as well, that these that these women really were quite philosophically serious, obviously, but in their dissent against this notion of a completely dry, abstracted, value-free picture of the universe and how each one pushed back on it. I mean, Midgley specifically against, you know, Dawkins' uh, ideal of the selfish gene, this came later, but she's been maybe Dawkins' best um, critic in some way, Elizabeth Anscombe, by turning to Wittgenstein and showing how, you know, Wittgenstein may be the great you know, inspirer of aspects of analytic philosophy, how he had turned on it and was actually writing uh, quite a lot about value. Um, uh, anyway, I uh, this is just a fantastic idea for a book. I can't wait to read it. So um, check out the book review and, uh, and uh, see what you think.
Jamel, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always like, uh, it's just really a unique pleasure to have you on it. And I hope we do it again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. This was a good one. It was. It was a good one this week. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is aptly enough by Nick Bertel, who does the succession theme, which we discussed at length. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.